The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. This is Squawk Pod, today on our podcast. Safety and COVID vaccine development, nine pharma CEOs have issued an historic joint statement. CNBC's health reporter Meg Terrell. They say, quote, we believe this pledge will help ensure public confidence in the rigorous scientific and regulatory process by which COVID-19 vaccines are evaluated and may ultimately be approved. Dr. Atul Gawande, surgeon, writer, and public health expert on avoiding a COVID resurgence this winter. Whether it's ventilators, masks, now it's tests. In the months to come, it will be vaccines. We need that basic public health infrastructure that matches the capacity to the need. And we can do it. And big news in autos. General Motors betting on electric vehicle darling Nikola. GM announcing an 11% stake in the startup. And CEO Mary Barra says it couldn't be a better fit. This is a wonderful validation of our technology and then bringing our engineering and manufacturing expertise to the table. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. It's Tuesday, September 8th, 2020. Do we have delusions of grandeur? Maybe. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. And gentlemen, welcome back to both of you. You guys are back just in time for what we've been watching in the markets. I mean, it, it, watching it uh, asymptotically head higher was, you know, watching it every day. We're like, this, this tech stuff is insane. <laughs> it's benefiting, unlike other companies, benefiting from, from what we're all um, sort of living with now, but it none, some of it didn't quite make sense as much as it went up. What, what was it up to? I mean, the Nasdaq right. was way up even for, even for the year. What do you think? Uh, we're back. Yeah, Congress is back. It's, it's What's better for America? <laughs> right. What's better for America? I, I think us coming back. Uh, maybe that's tied. What, what do you think, Sorkin? Uh, you know, Congress back, Senate back, Washington back, or us back together? Wait, or squawk I, I think back? there's a, a huge side. I'll take squawk. Yeah, squawk I'll, back. I'll take squawk. That, that, that's what I'll take that's, squawk back. I, I, I mean, do we have delusions of grandeur? Maybe, maybe just slightly. Uh, but, but I think it's uh, I don't, no coincidence. I don't think that the country's getting back to get uh, you know getting back to work. Uh, Washington wise, if you called what they do work, what do we do though? Well, we're getting back to work too. Uh, anyway, but but uh, uh, scary week last week. What it did have a lot to do, and I think we should talk about it this morning, uh, is the role of SoftBank. Uh, in artificially, effectively yep. inflating in those prices really over the past month uh, through call options. We're getting a lot more details about SoftBank's big bet on tech stocks. The Wall Street Journal reporting and also the FT, there's been lots of different reports now. Uh, the firm used stock options uh, to tie as much as $50 billion in individual tech stocks. Uh, some of the reporting I've done, the, notion, the notional amount of, 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 that, that they might have put out there, if, if all of the stocks ended up having to be bought, could be close to half a trillion dollars. SoftBank hasn't published any of the details of the trades just yet, but SoftBank shares dropped yesterday and today as investors got nervous about SoftBank's bet on tech uh, stocks rising. Also should note, when you really look at what was happening late last week, as far as I, I can tell, they were not in the market. And that, I think, has put a lot of pressure on what's happening. So you have the retail investors, the Robin investors, that's one element of it. But SoftBank coming in behind, buying a huge notional amount 
of stock, pushing that stock up. A lot of hedge funds and others on the other side of that trade having to actually buy that stock to hedge themselves. There's something like $4 billion in upside on that. They're up on the trade at this point by about $4 billion, but it's still right. unnerving to investors who, who thought they were investing in a, in a, in a vision fund, you know, looking for new startups, uh, new technology startups that were going to go well. It turns out it's just Masasan who is kind of playing the market on this, playing the U.S. market in a big way. Oh, there's no question. You know, if you go back and look in, the, in some of the filings from SoftBank before, they had bought into the FANGs. You could have actually seen some of the buy-in earlier. The issue in this case yeah. is that they just bought so much more, and they really bought so much more in the last three to four weeks. And because they did it with calls, and this is why it's affecting the market and is so interesting relative to even the issues that SoftBank is having. But because they're using calls, the notional amount of stock that's getting bought and all the hedges that are getting put on and how much stock is therefore being bought in the market is what really did push up the market to some extent. And then you had, of course, the Robin Hood effect and everybody else seeing that those stocks were going up um, the most interesting part is you don't see it in the volume, which was so interesting. That'll come later because so much of this was done, quote unquote, off the tape, if you will. Let's get back to this, uh, this, this sort of a heartwarming story, I guess. Uh, and that's uh, Congress returning uh, to Washington. Uh, uh, but it's important because now on top of a stimulus package, we've got to worry about keeping government open, which seems to happen again and again and again. Uh, we have deja vu all over again because government funding is going to expire. But this time... Uh, it seems like there may not be an issue. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin says that uh, Democrats and Republicans haven't reached a final deal on the spending legislation, but he predicts Congress is going to be able to move forward. He had meetings with Pelosi, uh, and it may be by the end of the week. That legislation is not expected, though, to contain any coronavirus relief provisions. Given that jobs report that we had, uh, even though there's you know, the, the, the rate of change might be decelerating a little bit. There's still a lot of jobs, and, and you, you know, the market's down but not out. So you wonder, the point we've made again and again, how much pressure is on lawmakers to do more based on some of them thinking that enough has been done already and, and we don't need to, you know, to, to write even a bigger a ticket for all of our children to eventually pay. So we'll, we'll see what uh, whether that, we that was my read on it Friday. On that. Joe, there, just that that was my read on it Friday. This makes it tougher. You continue to see the market at these levels, and, and obviously the market right. is not the economy. Nobody's saying it is. But when you see the market at these levels, it takes the pressure off on some aspects. When you see better than anticipated jobs numbers and other economic reports that have come along, you already had a lot of uh, a, a lot of congressmen and senators who were not interested in coming back to the table and putting more on it. And, and this probably gives them more of a wait and see approach. You had that one day last week before the the, the really ugly moves in the Nasdaq, but. In the Dow, it just looked like a blow off top. It's like 500 points. It was already extended. Remember, I don't yeah. know which day it was last week. I'm watching it, right. and it's like you're already way up here at almost 30,000, and now you're up another 500 on nothing, really. And, and, and I, it just little did we know that that, that, that may have been sort of a, a, a climax in terms of, of buying at that point. We'll see. Uh, we'll see these sharp corrections typically are part of a continuing move higher. But, uh, you know, with the election coming, I think all bets are off, you know. The FAA says that it is investigating manufacturing flaws affecting certain Boeing 787 jets. 
The regulator isn't giving more details, but the Wall Street Journal reports that production issues may stretch back nearly a decade. So, yeah, you are talking about a lot of planes that would have to be checked. Serious when you start hearing the, the word fuselage. And, and again, just to add this to the pile, guys, of the many, many issues that Boeing's dealing with, it had all the issues uh, going into this with its own planes and then to see the shutdown that, that we've seen in, in terms of flights and airlines under pressure not having money to, to buy new airlines or air, airplanes. So this is just added to the pile of many things they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Well, it's someday we'll all fly again. And by, and by the way, they, maybe. Yes. And of course, you know, you're talking about Washington. <laughs> we're all waiting to find out whether the airlines will get a bailout, a second bailout as well which is what Boeing is waiting on, um, and that's uh, been one of the overhangs there for them. So we'll see what happens. Nobody's flown, have they? Sorgen, you were were somewhere, but you didn't fly there. Of the three amigos here, no, I don't think we've been flying just yet. Others, I know some other people have been flying, but but we haven't done it yet. You've been driving a little? I drove so much that my right leg, because the cruise control wasn't, I drove so much that my right leg wouldn't work for like 24 hours. I was like... (laughs) Moving it around and, and trying to move it over here and from from the accelerator. I'm not kidding. From you know when you do that for like a long enough period, it stops working. I, I don't know whether it's get the nerve you, or the muscle. We're gonna or, get you a Tesla. We're gonna get you a Tesla, Joe. So you don't even have to touch the accelerator. Self driving. You, you know, read a book. That's a good idea. You can but just it, read a book. But I gotta stop at a Waffle exactly. House every three hours. That's the only problem, which is fine with me. Excellent. Anyway. Next on Squawk Pod, Dr. Atul Gawande, surgeon and staff writer at The New Yorker on what the U.S. should be doing to avoid a coronavirus resurgence in the fall and winter months. This is basic public health work and an infrastructure we should be building now, but we aren't. The race for a vaccine and for an infrastructure to match right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin, along with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan, all three of us together at last once again as uh, the summer comes to an end. And uh, well, this is always this is always when we start sprinting the marathon from now till Christmas. We'll see whether we really are this year because what an unusual year it's been. Breaking news out of the pharmaceutical sector. Let's get to Meg Terrell. Good morning, Meg. Good morning, Joe. Nine CEOs of some of the largest drug companies in the world announcing they've signed on to what they're calling a historic pledge uh, to uphold the scientific integrity and to put safety first as they are developing COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, These are basically the front runners in the vaccine race for COVID-19. All of the companies involved in Operation Warp Speed, uh, in addition to Merck, so that's Pfizer and its partner BioNTech, uh, AstraZeneca, Moderna, GlaxoSmithKline and Sanofi, Johnson & Johnson, uh, and Novavax, um, all signing on to this pledge to do essentially four things. They say always make safety and well-being a vaccine 
vaccinated people a top priority, continue to adhere to high scientific and ethical standards regarding the conduct of clinical trials and the rigor of their manufacturing process. They pledge to only submit for approval or emergency use authorization after demonstrating safety and efficacy through phase three uh, clinical studies designed to uh, designed and conducted to meet regulatory uh, guidelines through uh, regulatory authorities like the FDA, and they say to work to ensure sufficient supply and range of vaccine options, including those suitable for global access. They say, quote, we believe this pledge will help ensure public confidence in the rigorous scientific and regulatory process by which COVID-19 vaccines are evaluated and may ultimately be approved. And guys, this comes as vaccine development is moving at unprecedented speeds, and we are hearing about some hesitancy uh, from folks to believe in the process and to be comfortable taking these vaccines, especially uh, as the FDA's leadership has come under question uh, about political influence uh, regarding convalescent plasma and hydroxychloroquine. Uh, in a recent Change Research and CNBC poll, uh, about 30% of people said that they'd either definitely not or probably not take a COVID-19 vaccine. And so guys, the company is trying to step in here to tell the public they will keep safety first. Yeah, it, it's in response to, you know, rumors that we'd get an emergency youth authorization for, for one of these vaccines before completing uh, the, the process. There's always pressure on the FDA, um, obviously, in, especially with, you know, when we're talking about, you know, life and death situations with, with some of these drugs to, to cut corners. And I think they're just, uh, you know, they're just putting it out there that especially with so many people and vaccines are such a controversial, even before this, people, you know, with the anti-vaxxers and everything else. And, and we do remember back with, with polio before we knew everything, um, it, luckily nothing happened, but you need to be sure. It, it, and it's, this is a long time ago. And we know so much more and we know what's in vaccines. We know the scientific basis for how they work, Meg. So I, I would be comfortable with uh, with one of these, either the adeno-mediated um, vaccine or, you know, if it's a small stretch of messenger RNA, I'll give it a shot. I, I'm, I'm not uh, overly concerned with, with, like, contamination by some horrific virus that we don't see or something like that, you know, make so. But I understand a, a wary public needs to be uh, absolutely certain that, that we've, you know, crossed all the, crossed the I's and, crossed the I's and dotted the T's, right? I just wanted to know, you know, we are coming up on that on that final stretch in the vaccine development process, sort of inconceivably, because this only began in January, really. Uh, but when we get to the end of October, that's when Pfizer is uh, indicating that they may see results about whether their vaccine works. And the FDA has scheduled an advisory committee meeting of outside advisors October 22nd. And so a lot of people are going to be looking at that date and saying, are we going to see data and how transparent will this process be? Uh, so these are nine major drug makers uh, saying that their first priority is safety. I think this is hugely important, Meg, not only for building public confidence in a COVID vaccine, but for protecting um, the sanctity of, of vaccines in, in general and broader. We've had discussions with Scott Gottlieb about this. The reason you don't want to rush through and, and push something out there that hasn't been thoroughly vetted with a phase three trial is that if there were problems with it, not only would it convince people not to take a COVID vaccine, but it could undo a lot of the work that's been done with other vaccination programs around the globe. I mean, Joe brought up polio. Well, Jonas Salk actually 
vaccinated his children <laughs> as some of the very first people in testing this out. So, you know, that was something he felt 100 percent confident with. We don't do things that way anymore. But there has been so much that that we have done with vaccinations, diseases that we don't even think about anymore, because over the last 50 years or so, it, it, you know, they've 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 kind of gone away. They're not very common. Um, it, this is just important not only for COVID vaccination, but for faith in the vaccination system at, at large. Yeah, it's so fragile. Public health experts are incredibly concerned that a misstep here when vaccines are so important uh, could shake the, the fragile confidence in the vaccine system in general. And as you pointed out, it's this terrible irony of vaccines that they have rendered all these terrible diseases sort of non-existent. And so we don't appreciate that vaccines did that for us. So there's a lot on the line here. All right, Meg, uh, thank you. And a new article in The New Yorker, Dr. Atul Gawande, highlights why the United States is lagging behind in testing and how he thinks we can solve that problem ahead of the upcoming flu season. Joining us right now is Dr. Atul Gawande. He is staff writer for The New Yorker. He's also chairman of Haven and a surgeon at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And Dr. Gawande, it's good to see you. It's been a while. It's good to see you. Before we jump into the testing issues that we're facing in this country, let's talk a little bit about this news. These nine companies, these nine uh, companies that are working on a vaccine that have said they are going to make sure that they don't go ahead and file for FDA approval until they have seen results in a phase three-like study. Uh, that, that's a big move. And there have been a lot of questions that have been raised recently about the safety and efficacy of these vaccines if there was some rush, some push by the FDA to bring them out earlier than, than had been anticipated. This seems like a strong move. What do you think of it? I think this is a very big deal. Um, I'd like to see the other vaccine manufacturers sign on to the compact. But what we've seen again and again is that business has been willing to step out and follow the science much more consistently, um, asking, for example, that people put on their masks when you go into retail establishments. And I think this is just another example of being out, out in front and following the science. I think it's important, Meg Terrell had pointed out earlier that in, in recent polls, as many as 30 percent of people said they either would not take a coronavirus vaccine or they probably would not. And I think the steps like this are probably very important to, to beef up public confidence when it comes to uh, the idea of what would happen if there was a vaccine available. Yes, you know, I, I don't blame 30% of people saying they want to wait and see the evidence before they say they are going to take the vaccine. I think um, this is very important, and we want to see that we have solid clinical trials showing that, it, that these vaccines that uh, are being considered are safe, and that they are effective. Dr. Gawande, your, your article in The New Yorker is, is eye-opening just from the perspective of the testing problems that we have, the testing not being able to get done quickly and being readily available. You think this is a problem that could be fixed very quickly in a matter of weeks. First of all, describe the problem, and, and second of all, tell us how you'd fix it. Yeah, I think the thing to understand is that the problem we have in testing has changed from what it was in the winter. Um, in the first few months, the problem was we didn't have the technology. We didn't have the tests approved, and we didn't have labs capable of uh, deploying them. Then we, uh, where we are now, eight months into the pandemic in the United States, is we now have hundreds of labs that are uh, that that have ability to do these tests, and yet we're dependent on just three or four for the majority of U.S. testing. What we have is an inability to connect the untapped large amount of capacity that's out there. I name companies that would double, that, that have capacity that would double the volume of, uh, of test capacity that, that we are 
currently have currently available and are already delivering next day turnaround time. But we don't have, you know, I compare it to the electric grid. We don't have a system that matches capacity in the regions and cities where uh, there's lots of it to the regions and cities where there is need. And that's what we have to deploy. It's a sort of fundamental aspect of the public health infrastructure that we lack in the country, that whether it was ventilators, masks, now it's tests, in the months to come it will be vaccines. We need that basic public health infrastructure that matches the capacity to the need. And we can do it. I was a little surprised and shocked even at, at how much excess capacity there is in some of the labs that you've visited and seen. Talk about how many tests you think could be done just in the, the labs that you've already uh, kind of checked out and seen. Yeah, I'll give an example. Here in Boston, there is a, uh, uh, a nonprofit lab, the Broad Institute that's affiliated with Harvard and MIT. They have, uh, they ha you know, I, when I visited them in the middle of, of the summer, they had, they were doing a few thousand tests a day. In a state of 10,000 people, that was, they were already, you know, one of our largest sources of capacity. We've had good turnaround time. But they had on hand, in the middle of July, 35,000 tests a day capacity in a country doing 650,000 tests a day. And given the signal, they could, ex they could expand to 100,000 tests a day. Then another company here, Ginkgo Bioworks, is building capacity to do uh, north of 200,000 tests a day. But again, the question is, can they bring that capacity on to more than just this regional community and tap it uh, and bring it elsewhere? I point to companies uh, also like Helix and Gardent in California. Um, we have uh, University of Minnesota uh, Genomic Center has t tens of thousands of test capacity ready to come online. So, you know, this is, this is the situation we have where you do have big parts of the country where there's still difficult to do a turnaround time. The big companies, Quest, LabCorp, BioReference, have told us they alone can't carry the load when the surge comes in the fall, and we're already not able to meet the needs of making sure everybody who is sick has appropriate testing. So this is, this is basic public health work and, uh, and an infrastructure we should be building now, but, but we aren't. Dr. Uh Question for you, and this is something we've talked a lot uh, with Dr. Scott Gottlieb uh, over the past several months about. Are you of the view long term, irrespective of whether we get a vaccine for this year and whether we're going to need different vaccines every year, whether we're going to need massive surveillance testing programs across this country, meaning that you're going to be testing 100, 200 million people weekly uh, and you'd end up having to do that through schools, uh, through workplaces, um, and do that not just for the never, next several months, but do that for, for an extended period of time. Well, I think if the fire continues to be spreading the way it is, we will have little choice but to, but to do that. But, but it really breaks down to some very simple things. Um, the, the cases are spreading in places where people are having large crowds who aren't wearing masks and are packing together, whether it's right now uh, the campus parties that are fueling spread in multiple cities now uh, where, where we, were, we had it under control, or a few weeks ago, like the Sturgis motorcycle rally that has driven uh, the Dakotas to, be, uh, to have the highest rates of infection now in the country. That's step one, is we have to just get those basics. Wear a mask and let's avoid large gatherings where people disdain wearing masks and maintaining so social distancing. Second, we need to make sure that sick people 
um, anybody with symptoms can get a test. But there are big parts of resuming normal human interaction that are going to require, you know, what, what I've called assurance testing, meaning that um, some screening ability to make sure you're, you don't have an infection. And those can be as simple as wanting to uh, having travelers return into a state or uh, getting film, filming going again or uh, lots of essential work. Nursing homes are, are uh, a Dr. place Wanda, that you- we currently expect weekly testing but aren't delivering. Dr. Wayne, just so I understand, though, do you see a day where, for example, and I know the airlines have looked into this. I don't know where where they've landed on this. Do you see a day where you show up at an airport, irrespective of whether there's a vaccine available or not, and to get on the plane, they test you with with the equivalent of one of these quick Abbott tests? That would change everything if I mean, yes. in terms of yes, creating the confidence in the economy and in people's ability to travel. Yes, I agree that 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 when it comes to that's an example of a basic you want to get on a plane with 200 people uh, at the current rates, you can expect there'd be a case on the plane. And unless we have uh, uh, testing that will you you will not feel you're able to do those things with the same level of freedom that we have that we used to have. And testing would make that possible quick, rapid testing. And we have, you know, growing capacity to do that. The the critical thing is deploying that kind of capability and then knowing how to deal with the ins and outs. There are false negatives and false positives, and we have to be smart about how we deal with them. Dr. Gawande, I want to thank you for your time today. It's good seeing you, and we'll have you back again soon. Delighted to be here. Next on Squawk Pod, it's electric, a new dream for General Motors. That is, the car manufacturing giant has teamed up with unicorn-turned-electric-vehicle hot stock Nikola. And the two CEOs share a big electric vision for the future. The whole world is waiting for us to tell them who we are working with to build this, the the most amazing electric pickup truck and hydrogen fuel cell pickup truck in the world. Nicholas Trevor Milton and GM's Mary Barra. After this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Nikola Motor Company has come surging onto the electric vehicle scene. It's a competitor to Tesla, paying homage to the same 19th and early 20th century inventor, Nikola Tesla, who, fun fact, I share a birthday with. The company announced today it is teaming up with General Motors to use its widely acclaimed Altium battery technology. Nikola will hand over $2 billion in stock to GM, giving them an 11% stake in the company. The transaction is set to close before the end of the month, and Nikola expects their Badger truck to enter production by the year 2022. The electric truck startup is valued at about $15 billion, which is sizable considering that to this point, 
the company has yet to begin commercial production on a single vehicle. But Nikola's business isn't entirely about traditional EV batteries. The company is also pioneering hydrogen fuel cell technology. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin with the rest. Nikola forming a strategic partnership with General Motors this morning. Nikola Badger will be engineered and manufactured by GM. GM getting an 11% ownership stake in Nikola as a result and the right to nominate one director to the board. Joining us right now to talk all about it is Trevor Milton, founder and executive chairman of Nikola, and Mary Barra, CEO of GM. Good morning to both of you. Uh, I'm going to start on the GM side, if I could, Mary, and try to try to get a sense of how you were thinking about this partnership and why you ended up deciding to do this. And then I want to get to Trevor on what it really means. Well, thanks, Andrew. And we're very excited to be partnering with Nikola. When we look at the opportunity to continue to leverage our technology, the Ultium battery platform system, as well as the HydroTech uh, fuel cell technology, this is a wonderful validation of our technology and then bringing uh, our engineering and manufacturing expertise to the table. So, so Trevor, I know you were looking for a manufacturing partner uh, for quite some time. Um, in terms of this transaction, just, just break it down for us. Our understanding is that, that GM is going to receive $2 billion, a $2 billion equity stake in the company. I assume that's at the valuation prior to the move this morning. And we're looking at your stock, by the way, moving 45% right now on this news. GM is up at up 8%. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, look, we had, uh, we had, we had you know, four or five different OEMs we analyzed who would be the best one for, for Nikola to build the Badger. And GM was very unique to us because they brought a lot more than just building the Badger. The whole world is waiting for us to tell them who we are working with to build this, the, the most amazing electric pickup truck and hydrogen fuel cell pickup truck in the world. And Jim was definitely the top of our list. And after I got to know Mary Moore and their whole entire team, it was just absolutely the right decision for the, for the company to do. Um, I mean, it's just, it's, it's a perfect relationship. They're one of the best purchasers, manufacturers, engineering houses in the entire planet. And they're uh, working with Nikola with all of our, our intellectual property, combining it with what they're doing. The Badger is truly going to be one of the most amazing, uh, amazing vehicles ever built. And it complements their existing powertrain. So they do get, an, they get an 11, 11% stake in the company. And throughout our life, uh, throughout our agreement with uh, GM, we're going to see somewhere between a four and five billion dollar savings just in battery costs alone. So for us, it was a no brainer. And for GM, it's a it's it's a great way to help cross utilize all the everything we're doing, everything they're doing. It's just a, really a perfect relationship without hurting each other. Hey, Trevor, real quick. Are you anticipating the GM will always be your manufacturer? Do you ever anticipate manufacturing these vehicles on your own? No, we do not um, want to make our own, like our own truck lines. I mean, this is what GM's so good at. I mean, it's billions and billions of dollars. It's going to be built at their plant, engineered, validated, and tested with their team as well. So we get access to their entire supply chain, the team that has built some of the best programs in the world, the Silverados, the Hummers, I mean, everything. They've got the best of the best, and and they're going to be um, building our trucks out of their plant. And that was the idea is to save Nikola billions of dollars while still being able to um, – grow with someone that doesn't that doesn't conflict with our DNA. Mary, uh, as part of this deal, uh, GM says it expects you to receive an excess of $4 billion of benefits, what you're calling benefits, between the equity value. So we'll call that the $2 billion value, along with con- contract manufacturing of the Badger. So I'm assuming those are going to be contracts uh, that, 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 that Nikola is going to be paying you. Is that right? 
Sure. Uh, you know, in addition to all the technology that we're bringing in the value from both an Ultium and a Hydrotech technology perspective, there also then is, uh, we'll be doing the manufacturing and validation and engineering. So all of that comes together. And again, it's for the Badger, but it's also for the field sector fuel cell technology for the Nikolai uh, products in the uh, class seven and eight truck business. So this is a huge growth opportunity for us. And as Trevor said, as we started to talk, we realized we shared a common uh, vision of the world of creating an all electric future. The teams have already begun discussions and I, there's, there's really good chemistry between the technical teams. So we couldn't be more excited about working with Nikola. And, and Mary, just so I understand, while, while Nikola is going to be using some of your technology, are you going to be allowed to use some of their technology in your trucks? Well, I think, you know, the truck, the Badger truck, and then the, the Class 7 and 8 trucks are going to be leveraging our, our propulsion technology, both Ultium and the Hydrotech. So that's really going to be the foundation. As we go forward, we may find other areas that we can collaborate and share, but that's the foundation that we're building off of right now. And, and then one related question. I see you're going to get a board seat uh, on, the, on this company, the General Motors will. Is there any opportunity for GM... Uh, or like a first look opportunity to, to ultimately buy out this company and take it inside of General Motors? You know, I think we're very focused right now on working in partnership uh, with Trevor, his team. Uh, they've, got a, they've got a strong team and a great vision, and that's what our focus is, is working together and, and seeing both companies grow. And, and related to that, Mary, because we're looking at the stocks moving. I mean, it's, it's an unbelievable thing. Uh, Nicola now up 42 percent this morning just on this news. Your stock also up, uh, Mary, up over 7 percent. You look at, though, the valuation of Nicola, and it is, uh, well, it's about 25 percent of or, or maybe it's maybe closing it higher this morning uh, of your own valuation. Does that make sense to you as someone who's been in this business a very long time? Well, I think we're leveraging all of the skills and capabilities that we have. You know, a rich um, and very uh, accomplished uh, engineering, design engineering team, manufacturing team, uh, leveraging our global cell with purchasing. So we're just going to continue to advance our, our goal to create an all-electric future with partners uh, like Nikola, as well as what we announced last week with continuing our partnership with Honda. So we think that's the way to really unlock value at General Motors, and we're going to continue to stay focused. Uh, Trevor, can I ask you the valuation question? Because we are looking at the stock up, as I said, 45 percent, which is a huge move. And uh, and yet, as I said, this this represents a big chunk of what even GM is worth today. And um, of course, there's no car that's been sold yet. Yeah, I mean, look, I think the world is rewarding those that are changing the world for the better. Um, they're kind of tired of the of some of the old legacy philosophy where it's like, OK, this is all we do is we build cars and the more cars we build, the more we pollute. Nice thing about GM is they've taken a stance of, look, we know um, zero emissions is a huge part of the future of the world. And the investors out there, the ESG funds and the other investment groups, they're sitting back saying, you know what, we're going to invest. We're going to invest in those and and reward those that are willing to completely disrupt the supply chain and go zero emission. And that's why Nikola is such an incredible story. I mean, look, the whole world is waiting for us to announce this. It's finally out today, which is a huge relief for us. Because we can we can start talking about the full production, where where we're going now, when units are going to be delivered. The world knows that this truck's you know it's it's awesome. I I unveiled the truck just in a couple months from now, so you know it's it's not about the the next two months. I mean our our generation's all about you know entertain me for the next two months, but it's not about that. It's about the next. It's about the long term, and GM is a perfect partner to be able to build the Badger. The truck's coming out. Um, Nikola's building out hydrogen networks. I mean, we just couldn't be more happy with this partnership. It's, it, that's why people are rewarding us. It's, it's a long-term play. It's the ability to get in early. 
And that's what Nikola is. It's a, it's a great relationship. One final question, and I'll kick it over to, to, to Becky, which is on the margins for EVs, this for Mary, do you expect them to grow over time? And how profitable could they become given how, how low margins EVs have been thus far? Well, when you look at the margins on electric vehicles, it's all about the battery. And that's why the work that we've been doing to create a, a platform with the Ultium um, battery system, and we have uh, a whole technology roadmap, roadmap of taking cost out of the battery while increasing the uh, the power. So we're very excited about that roadmap. And, and a partnering uh, like we're doing with Nikola gives us the opportunity to build scale even faster and to get those costs down, gain the efficiency. So we definitely envision uh, a world where we're going to have strong margins in our EV products across the board. Hey, guys, just to add a little context to this, this news caught all of us by surprise here. Phil LeBeau writes in and he says that this is a win-win for both sides. He says that GM gets a stake in Nikola and has a customer to use some of its EV capacity at that Detroit Hamtrak plant. Um, the ultimate battery system it's developing. Um, Nikola doesn't have to pay to set up manufacturing. It can tap GM's expertise on this. And obviously, that's the reaction you're seeing in the stock market right now. Mary, can you just give us a little bit of a, a, an update about what you do have going on at the Detroit Hamtrick plant, how many customers you have there, what sort of capacity you have with the EV right now? Well, right now, uh, we're uh, in the process of getting ready to um, set up the Detroit Hamtramck plant to build the uh, GMC Hummer EV. And so that's what the focus is right now. We haven't announced, haven't announced the total capacity there yet, but uh, it is something that is going to be foundational to our EV strategy. And the team there is doing great work uh, every day to get ready to be able to launch uh, our first uh, 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 Hummer EV, our um, battery electric truck program, uh, next year. Okay. Mary and Trevor, we want to thank you. We want to thank you for joining us uh, on this uh, big and uh, what may turn out to be quite historic day uh, in uh, the future, both of GM and uh, of Nikola. And we appreciate you joining us this morning. Thanks to both of you. Thank you. I thank you. I appreciate it. And that's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin, together in the spirit of social distance. So, Becky, I, we keep saying we're all together. It doesn't feel like we're all together, really. What are we, we're alone or we're, we're like alone no. together. Is that it? We are. No? We're, we're lonely together. We, we miss each other. Together in spirit, as you we're said at the very together. beginning of this whole thing. We're together. We are. That's still, yeah, that's, uh, we're alone together. That's a famous album, actually, believe it or not. Um, the Dave Mason uh, album from long, long ago. But I digress. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. And to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.